We're going to read John chapter 17, page 1089. So this is Jesus in the upper room the night before he was crucified. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you, for I've given them the words that you gave me, and they received them. And they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you give me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. A righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know you, I know you, And these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. If you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, what would you pray for today? If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you pray for today? In our everyday life, I guess our prayers are often about quite small things. Lord, I need a parking space because I'm running late. 
give me peace about this presentation. I've got to do it at work today. Get my kids through their exams. Help me find my car keys. None of that is wrong. The Bible tells us, don't don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, the Bible says in Philippians 4, present your request to God. So it's not wrong. But if I knew I was going to die tomorrow, I suspect my prayers would be about bigger things than a parking space or a school place. Because the prospect of death focuses the mind on what really matters, what matters ultimately, what matters eternally. As the 18th century writer Samuel Johnson famously said, when a man knows he is to be hanged, it focuses the mind wonderfully. Facing death, our prayers would zero in, wouldn't they, on the important stuff, the big stuff. And the big stuff is what we find in this prayer of Jesus in John 17 that I've just read. So this is the night before he was to be hanged. Hanged on a tree. Crucified. It's the Thursday evening. And he's in the upper room with his disciples. In chapters 13 to 16, they've just had the Passover meal together and Jesus has been talking to them. But now in chapter 17, just before... They head out to the Garden of Gethsemane, that's 18 verse 1. Just before that, Jesus talks not to them, but he talks to his Father in heaven. And we get to listen in. We get to eavesdrop. We get to hear what was on Jesus' mind the night before his death. What mattered to him? You know, what were his big concerns? What were his priorities? What was he praying to his Father about? He deliberately prayed aloud because he wanted his disciples to hear and he wanted us to hear as well. He wanted to teach us what matters most. So this is the big stuff. This is the important stuff. And Jesus wants this prayer to shape our priorities, our ambitions, our prayers. People talk, don't they, about uh, being on the same page you know, in a relationship, they say it's important that you're on the same page. It means that you agree about what matters most. You've got the same goals. means your values are aligned. Are we on the same page as Jesus, the Son of God? Uh, we should want to be, because if anyone knows what matters most in life, surely it is him. And this chapter is a chance to make sure that we're on the same page as Jesus, in our priorities, our ambitions, our prayers. On the outline inside the service sheet, you'll see we're going to begin, or Jesus begins, by praying about the big plan. So the big salvation plan, that's the focus in verses 1 to 5. So verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus prays that the Father would glorify him as the Son. How would he do that? Well, two ways. Firstly, in his death. Back in chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus said this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he's praying about his death here, that it would achieve the purpose for which God sent him and bear the fruit of saving people. 
So he's praying about his death, but secondly, he's praying about his resurrection. He's praying that the Father would raise him after death to life and exalt him. So back in chapter 17, in verse 5, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What a staggering thing for someone to say. That they enjoyed glory with God the Father before the universe was made. If you say that, you're either the Son of God or you're a nutter. Jesus prays the Father would raise him from death and restore that glory to him. So it's in his death and resurrection that the Son of God is glorified. These are the key events, the death and resurrection of Jesus, in which the Son reveals his glory. So these events, they're the turning points of history. They're what we need to believe. They're what we need to focus on. They're what we need to tell others about. These two events, the death and resurrection of Jesus, stand at the very heart of the gospel. When Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, he said this, I delivered over to you as of first importance what I also received, that Jesus died for our sins, and he was buried, and he was raised. So this isn't something we just sort of wheel out and dust down at Easter time once a year. This is to be our centre all year round, and we'll be celebrating the death of Jesus a little bit later with the bread and wine. So Jesus prays that the Father would glorify the Son. Why? So that the Son would glorify the Father. So verse 1, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. That is the Son's ultimate goal, that glory would come to the Father. How would that happen? Well, glory comes to the Father as people come to him through the Son. Glory comes to the Father as people come to him through the Son. So verse 2, he says that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the, one, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So that is how the Son brings glory to the Father. As people come to know God, the Father, through the work of the Son. So the logic of these opening verses is this. The Father has given authority over all people to the Son. The Son uses this this authority to give eternal life to the people the Father has given him. This eternal life is to know the Father and the Son, and this brings glory to the Father. That's the big plan. Okay, That's the salvation plan. That the goal is eternal life for people, but ultimately glory for the Son and the Father. Now, this is pretty deep stuff. Um, You think, okay, so what? Let me give you two take-homes from this. The first is this. And this can come as a bit of a shock to us. The Bible is not about us, but it's about God. In the first place. So, it's about him being glorified. He's the main character in the Bible story. He's the center of the universe. He's the ultimate reality. 
And even our salvation ultimately brings glory to him. The purpose of life, the purpose of salvation, is to glorify God. We've been going through a catechism over the past year in in church. We just finished it the other week. But there's another catechism called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which in its first question asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Grasping this involves a huge paradigm shift. So it's a fundamental change in our thinking. But the more we get this, the more our lives lives align with reality, and things fall into their right place, including many of our problems. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones was a doctor by training, and he wrote this. He said, the real cure for most of our subjective ills is to be so enraptured by the beauty and glory of Christ that we'll forget about ourselves. And we won't have time to think about ourselves at all. He compares it to to looking at some amazing scenery in nature uh, or falling in love. He says you become so absorbed by something or someone outside of yourself that for a little while you just forget about yourself. And it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. And he says this is the cure for most of what he calls the mumps and measles of our souls. A second take home is that eternal life is our biggest need. So this is what Jesus came to give us. Eternal life, which is knowing the Father and the Son. So this is why the Father gave the Son authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to his people. And so that should be our number one concern for ourselves, for one another, eternal life through the Son. You know the uh, the birthday present dilemma? What do you give the person who has everything? Answer, eternal life. That if you have everything, but you don't have this, you've got nothing. Couldn't help but think of those uh, five people on the Titan sub, Compare them to the 500 migrants who lost their lives at sea when their boat sank a few weeks before. In terms of what this world can offer, the migrants had nothing. And the Titan passengers had everything. Billionaires, you know, able to blow 250,000 just on a trip for, for adventure, for a bit of fun. And yet now, only one thing matters. Did they have eternal life? Are they now with the one true God? And you remember there was, a, there was a father and son who were supposed to be on board, but they gave up their places to the other father and son. And inevitably, after the event, they reflected on, that would have been us. And hopefully it's moved them to reflect on the big issues of life. And we do well to ask the same. If that had been me, what then? Do I have what ultimately matters? Am I sure of that? Would I be enjoying eternal life with God through Jesus? What then are the marks? What are the marks of these people who have eternal life? Well, first, they're given by the Father to the Son. Do you see that in verse 6? 
Jesus says, I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Jesus is speaking in the first place here, and all the way until verse 19. He's he's speaking in the first place about the apostles. But the principles apply to all believers. That God's people are given by the Father to the Son. They're chosen by God. As Jesus said earlier in chapter 6, verse 37, he said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And chapter 6, verse 44, he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Now, this is a difficult truth, isn't it, for us to understand, a difficult truth to accept, but it's actually a wonderful reassurance to know that my salvation is not just about me choosing Jesus. We are God's gift to Jesus. And that's a great encouragement as well in sharing the gospel to know that the Father's going to use this to draw to himself those he's chosen. Second feature of God's people is that they believe and keep the Father's word. So verse 6 says, Jesus says, verse 6, they have kept your word. And verse 8, I've given them the words that you gave me and they've received them and they believe that you sent me. So a mark of God's true people is that we, we don't just believe in God, we believe in Jesus. We believe in his words and what the New Testament testifies about him. And we need to hold on to that, don't we, in a city where so many people say, oh yeah, we believe in God, but they don't believe in Jesus and his words and what the Bible says about him. Third feature of God's people is that they are distinct from the world. So verse 6, Jesus speaks about the people you gave me out of the world. And verse 9, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Biblical thinking is binary, isn't it? All people everywhere fall into one of two groups. The world or God's people. And that's it. You know, it's black and white. There are no shades of grey. And we see that, don't we, in so many parables that Jesus taught were either wheat or weeds, were either righteous or evil. It's black and white. So those are three features of God's people. Given by the Father to the Son, they believe the Father's word, they're distinct from the world. And it is these people who have eternal life. It is these people who are at the heart of God's big salvation plan. And so nothing matters more than that we make sure we are those people. Should be our number one ambition for ourselves and for others to become one of these people. Because this is the big thing God is doing. He's sovereignly at work through the Son to give people eternal life. There's a song uh, that the kids sing in Sunday school which has the chorus, how wonderful to be a part of God's amazing plan. And it is. I mean, so many people nowadays, don't they? They feel, they feel worthless. They feel, you know, my life doesn't count. I don't matter. But what security and what comfort to know that you are part of God's big amazing plan and purpose. And if we receive Jesus personally, that comfort is ours. But what then? So what should be our ambition for those who are part of this people? What are the big needs of this people? 
Well, in the rest of the chapter, we get to listen in to what Jesus prays for them. And this is what we should be praying for ourselves and for one another. First big need, protection. Look at verse 11. Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them. To keep going as God's people, we need the Father to keep us, to keep us in his name, to keep us believing in him, to keep us following him. Verse 12, Jesus says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. I have guarded them. But, verse 13, now I'm coming to you. So Jesus kept his apostles when he was with them on earth. And he was now handing over this responsibility to the Father. What did they need protecting from? What do we need protecting from? Verse 14, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. The world hates those who follow Jesus and who live by God's word. In many countries, this hatred is expressed in persecuting them. They are physically attacked, they are imprisoned, they are killed. Last Monday, I spent the afternoon with a man who had Uh, just a few weeks ago, fled his home country with his 11-year-old son. And he fled because his life was in danger, because he'd started following Jesus. But the world's hatred is bubbling to the surface more and more in our own culture. So followers of Jesus are increasingly seen as not just irrelevant, but evil and toxic because of what we believe. But just as dangerous is the world tempting us to become like it, to become worldly. If we're to keep going, we need the Father to keep us, and we need him to protect us. To protect us ultimately from the evil one who stands behind all the world's hostility and seduction. So verse 15, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. If you were with us in our series going through Job, we saw something, didn't we, of the power of the devil. It was pictured there in Job chapter 41. Satan, pictured by God as Leviathan, this terrifying, fire-breathing dragon. We need divine protection. Do we pray for this? Do you find yourself praying for this? Do we pray for protection, spiritual protection for ourselves? Do we pray for one another? We should do. This is what Jesus prayed. Don Carson wrote this. He said, um, by contrast, we spend much more time today praying about our health, our projects, our decisions, our finances, our family, and even our games than we do praying about the danger of the evil one. Materialists at heart, we often discern only very, very dimly the spiritual struggle of which Paul, for instance, was so deeply aware and as was Jesus. Our second big need is sanctification. So verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To sanctify means to set apart. To set apart. So by believing the truth, we are set apart from the world for God. Now, this sanctification is both a one-off and it is an ongoing thing. 
So let me give you a verse from 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, which says this. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be saints. So it's one-off and ongoing. If we trust in Jesus, we have been sanctified, one-off, set apart by God, and we are now called ongoing to be saints, same root word, which means to live a sanctified life, to live a holy life, to be distinct from, different from the world around us. Not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12. The other day I was driving down through uh, Stamford Hill and Clapton, and the streets are full of Orthodox Jews. And they stand out. They stand out big time. With their very distinctive dress and their hats and their hairstyles. And they are not bothered at all about being different and looking, frankly, ridiculous. They're not bothered about that. They're not bothered about being distinct from the world. And as followers of Jesus, we should be just as committed to being distinct, to being different from the world. Not in our dress, not in our hairstyles, but in our beliefs, in our behavior. I wonder if often we are too concerned to blend in. I certainly see this in myself. We're too concerned to blend in. We don't want to be different. We don't like standing out. We worry a lot, don't we, that our views are out of line with what the world around us thinks and thinks is acceptable. But as those set apart by the Father, we're to live set apart lives. Now, that doesn't mean we retreat from the world. It doesn't mean we withdraw into our own little community. But we are to live lives which are distinct from the world. As the phrase goes, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. Because we're not just sanctified, we're also sent. So, verse 18, Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. We're sent into the world on mission. To tell people about God's big plan that they might believe in Jesus and have eternal life. But there's no, point, there's no point at all being sent if we're not sanctified, if we're not set apart, if we're not distinct. Some Christians have the misguided idea that we will reach the world by becoming like the world. You know, that if the church changes its teaching to what the world thinks is acceptable, then people are going to believe. But if the church becomes like the world, we've got nothing to offer. So to be sanctified should be our ambition, our prayer for ourselves, for one another. Lord, make me, make us holy. Third big need is union. Verse 20, Jesus prays specifically for those who would later believe in him through the word of the apostles, that is us. And his big prayer in verse 21 is that they may all be one. This time, this union has two dimensions. Firstly, it's union with God. So verse 21, he says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Kind of does your mind in a bit, doesn't it? But it's saying that through faith in Christ, we're united with God in a way that mirrors the union of the Father and the Son. We're caught up into this divine union. So it's union with God, but also our union with God leads to union with one another. So verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, that they may be perfectly one. 
So as God's people, our goal should be to become as united as the Father and the Son are united. Now that is a high bar, isn't it? That is a, to be perfectly one. That should be our ambition. And that will be a witness to the world, verse 21 and 23, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. One of the things that sin does is that sin wrecks relationships and sin causes division and sin destroys unity. And by contrast, in Christ, God unites us with him and with one another. And that unity is a really, really precious thing. And we should treasure it. We should pursue it. We should, as Ephesians 4 says, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As Christians, we destroy this unity by departing from the truth. And we're seeing that at the moment in the Church of England. And such people need to repent of causing division by departing from the truth, notably the bishops. As Christians, we destroy unity by focusing on secondary issues and making them all important. So, for example, some Christians insist that the the only Bible version that you are allowed to use is the King James Version, the authorised version. And it's a ridiculous thing to divide over. And as Christians, we destroy unity simply through being selfish and unkind and unloving and proud. Unity matters. Jesus prayed for it for us, and we should pursue it. And the final prayer of Jesus is about relocation. So verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus was returning to heaven. And his goal for his people is that they would join him there. He wants us to be with him, where he is now, and to see his glory. Isn't that amazing? There's a sense in which life is not complete for Jesus at the moment, because we're not there. He wants us to be there with him. So if Jesus were to send us a postcard now from heaven, he would write on it, wish you were here. He wants us to be there. He wants us to be, to be with him and to see his glory. To see his glory. What's the most amazing, spectacular sight you've ever seen? I don't know if you've been to the Grand Canyon or I remember as a kid going to the Niagara Falls. Or maybe you've been to the Alps and you stand there. So open mouth and you're lost for words. And you're overwhelmed and you're full of joy. And wonder because the sight is so stunning. Those experiences are a tiny glimpse, aren't they, of what it will be like when we see Jesus in all his glory. And as we'll sing in our final hymn, we will be lost in wonder, love and praise. Well, that is where we are heading as God's people. And that is the goal to which we need to press on. Our ambition should be to make sure that we get there and that we get there with as many other people as possible. In uh, Growth Group this past week, we were discussing ambition, uh, following on from last Sunday's sermon. And uh, Christian, where's Christian? Anyway, Christian was sharing with us (coughs) 
um, and he's okay for me to share it with you. He said that when, um, when he first came over to the UK, his ambition was to become the youngest director on the trading floor. And he achieved it. He got there. But when he achieved it, he said it was just a few handshakes and a pay rise. And he went away thinking how meaningless that was. It just didn't matter. Well, what does matter? Well, the big stuff. The big stuff that Jesus prayed about the night before his death. God's big salvation plan. That we are those who are given eternal life and bring glory to the Father. And that as God's people, we are then protected sanctified, united, and relocated. That is what matters to Jesus. Is it what matters to us? So are we on the same page as him? Or are we absorbed in trivial pursuits? Well, let's pause for a moment to reflect on what we've heard, maybe to pray in the quietness of our own minds and hearts, and then we'll continue um, together in prayer.